Good morning, or if you're watching this in the United States, good evening, uh, and welcome to the U.S. Study Center webinar on the future of America's alliances. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Today, with the Australia-United States Ministerial Dialogue, or OSMIN for those of you in the know, having just wrapped up in Washington, D.C., it seemed like a propitious time to discuss the past, present, and future of America's alliances. I'm very excited to be co-hosting this discussion with my colleague, John Lee. Not that he needs any type of introduction, but John serves as a senior fellow here at the U.S. Studies Center. He's also a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. And from 2016 to 2018, John was the senior advisor to the Australian foreign minister. John and I are pleased to welcome Dr. Mira Rapp-Hooper to Australia, uh, albeit virtually, to talk about her terrific new book, Shields of the Republic, The Triumph and Perils of America's Alliances. Mira is the Stephen A. Schwartzman Senior Fellow for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also a Senior Fellow at the Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. Her academic writings have appeared in Political, Quarter Political Science Quarterly, Security Studies and Survival, Policy writings have appeared in the National Interest, Foreign Affairs, and the Washington Quarterly. And her analysis has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, and on NPR, MSNBC, and BBC. And if you want to check Twitter, she has a new article that just went up on CNN. Mira also worked as the Asia Policy Coordinator for the 2016 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. Now, at the most basic level, Mira's book, Shields of the Republic, had me thinking not about shields, but about chimpanzees. Stick with me here for a second. Uh, in Lawrence Friedman's masterful work, Strategy, Friedman summarizes Jane Goodall's research on chimpanzees in war and in peace. From the start, he wrote, success could come as much from being smart as from being strong. And it was especially smart to get others to help overpower opponents. That is, by building alliances. Now. As compelling as that is, uh, I'd like to start not by talking about chimpanzees, but by taking us way into the distant past of 2016, when then-candidate Donald Trump routinely disparaged America's alliances, calling NATO obsolete and accusing Japan and South Korea of ripping off the United States. At the beginning of Mira's book, she notes that Trump's attacks on U.S. alliances did not win him the election but nor were they disqualifying, as they might have been in an earlier era. Now, partially, those attacks weren't disqualifying because they played into many commonly held perceptions in America, that America's alliances were useless, that they were expensive, and that they were perhaps even unnecessary. Uh, there are some, in fact, many, who believe that these perceptions were not only wrong, but harmful. But the, 20, 000, the, the 2016 presidential election wasn't really the place to rebut those arguments. And frankly, those who wanted to challenge the argument that U.S. alliances were obsolete or too expensive weren't doing so particularly convincingly. That, in fact, is where Mira's book enters the picture. But the book does a lot more than just rebut those arguments. It offers a history of America's alliances, provides an analysis of where we're at, and offers policy prescriptions for where we need to go. Now, before diving into the book, I want to note what I thought were three of its most interesting and perhaps even controversial points. And I'm noting these up front in the hope that we can return to them during our conversation. 
First, the results of America's alliances are impressive. Mirror writes that no American ally has ever been the victim of a major attack, and there's little evidence that allies entrap Washington in serious crises or wars. Second, no matter how impressive those results are, they're especially hard to measure because you're counting non-events as the measure of alliance success. That is, as Mira writes, if alliances are serving their defensive and deterrent purposes, wars and crises will never erupt and allies will not defect, i.e. you are counting things that do not happen. Third and finally, U.S. alliances are not equipped for the current moment, but that's not a cause for despair, at least not quite yet. Rather, it's a cause to refocus on how we think of them, what they're supposed to accomplish, and who does what. All right, here's the game plan for the rest of the hour. John and I will pepper Mira with some discussion questions, and then we'll work to broaden the discussion to include those of you who are watching. If you want to submit a question, please do so into the question box, but I would ask that you please make it short so that we can wade through them and get as many of those questions in as possible. All right, Mira, uh, enough uh, at the top from me. Let's start at the very beginning with your book. Uh, I know it's backwards here when I hold it up, but Shields of the Republic. Uh, when you write a book, you put a lot of thought into the title. Can you please tell us where the title comes from? I certainly can, but I would be remiss if I did not first thank you for that incredibly spirited and effective introduction, Charlie. You basically have summarized my whole book, so I think we should all just have a drink, acknowledging that it's only 10 in the morning there. Um, but really, thank you so much for having me today. A big thanks to the U.S. Study Center for convening this event to a wonderful colleague, John Lee, whose work I so admire, and to my dear friend, Charles, who's been a supporter of this project since before its inception. Uh, now, Charlie, on to your question. The title, Shields of the Republic, where did it come from? The title of the book is appropriated from the mid-century century journalist and commentator, Walter Lippmann. In 1943, Lippmann wrote a book entitled U.S. Foreign Policy, colon, Shield of the Republic. And there were at least two really central parts of Lippmann's argument that I thought belonged in this title because of what they spoke to in the role that alliances have played in American foreign policy. First, in his book in 1943, Lippmann was arguing that U.S. foreign policy served the role of protecting the Republic. That is, the entire purpose of a foreign policy should be to allow the country to stay prosperous and secure so that it could progress um, to its full fruition. And to my mind, this was an incredibly important argument because it spoke so beautifully to what exactly alliances had done for the United States. They had been a shield for the Republic. Second part of Lippmann's argument was that foreign policy always had to be strategically solvent. That is, the means that were used to accomplish it had to match the objectives of that foreign policy. And to my mind, American foreign policy had remained strategically solvent for seven decades, in no small part because it relied so heavily on alliances to accomplish its goals. Uh, that said, I don't agree with everything in Walter Lippmann's argument either that he made in 1943 or in general, but my decision to pluralize his title, that is Shields of the Republic, is an allusion to the fact that the logic of the American alliance system has changed many times over the life of the country and indeed will need to change once more if it is to survive. 
Uh, terrific. I, that's really an important point, and I like that you uh, have that in the title and the fact that it's a reminder, first and foremost to Americans, that alliances are not an end in and of themselves, as much as we love our allies. Uh, they are meant to do something for America because they are meant to preserve the Republic at home. Uh, if you don't mind, actually, I'd like to do some of the basics and even more so than we have up front for those who are tuning in. Can you walk us through some of those basics, Mira? Uh, how many alliances does the US have? How long have they been around for? What exactly is this idea of forward defense? What have they accomplished? That's the triumph part of your subtitle. And what's the problem with them? Uh, what's the peril of alliances for America or for others? A great set of basics to tee us up here today. Uh, so when we are talking about alliances and I am talking about alliances in my book, I am talking about formal treaty guarantees. That is mutual defense commitments between the United States and its allies. The United States has those with its NATO allies in Europe and with a few key allies in the Asia Pacific region. Of course, Australia is one of them. By my count, this is a total of 34 treaty alliances or rather alliances with 34 different countries in Europe and in Asia. And in Asia, I'm counting South Korea, Japan, Australia, and the Philippines. We'll talk a little bit about Thailand later. That's a sort of more controversial case. Um, but when it comes to the question of how long these alliances have been around and where they've come from and what they've accomplished, it's worth noting first that the decision to form this alliance system in both regions was a radical change in American strategy when it happened. The alliance system was, of course, born in the early days of the Cold War. The idea was really planted in 1948. But for the first 150 years of the Republic, the United States actually abjured alliances with any country on the theory that forming them was likely to be entangling and entrap it in unwanted wars and conflicts. But World War II flipped that logic on its head. Developments in military technology, namely the advent of long-range bombers, uh, the incipient missile age, and the nuclear age, showed the United States that it could no longer be safe if it relied solely on its own favorable geography. And instead, it was going to have to adopt a strategy to meet threats farther from its shores if it wanted to avoid another attack like Pearl Harbor. So the United States turned to a system of alliances in hopes of holding the balance of power in both Europe and in Asia. The strategy was really a threefold one. By forming alliances, it could establish forward defense, that is the use of forward troops and bases to meet threats in Europe and Asia instead of waiting for them to land on US shores. It would concomitantly try to establish deterrence, that is dissuading rivals like the Soviet Union from ever attacking at all. And finally, it would use alliances for the purposes of allied assurance, that is assuring allies, convincing them that they were actually being protected by US security guarantees and thereby helping to bring them along with preferred US foreign policies. This was an incredibly ambitious strategy when it was first devised, not least because the aim here was to keep war from starting at all. For centuries, alliances had been used to fight and win specific wars, but the American gamble was that this strategy could hold the balance of power and actually avert conflict altogether. And its successes were many. To begin with, as Charlie noted in his opening remarks, the Cold War stayed cold. 
No U.S. ally was ever the victim of an unprovoked attack, causing the United States to come to its aid. Any number of crisis hotspots that seemed all too likely to escalate, a divided Germany, the Korean Peninsula, or the Taiwan Straits, did not escalate and instead stayed manageable. Alliances helped to stem the spread of nuclear weapons. They helped to transform former wartime rivals like Germany and Japan into consolidated democracies, leading economies and regional leaders in their own right. And they bought the United States tremendous political goodwill around the world that ultimately made its preferred foreign policies cheaper and more effective than they ever possibly could have been otherwise. So this all looks like a rather remarkable Cold War record, um, which might lead you to ask, Charlie, what is the peril? What's the problem? Sounds like we're doing pretty good here. The problem is that this system was designed to work as it did during the Cold War. That is to deter and defend against high-end conventional military and potentially nuclear conflict with the Soviet Union. But in many ways, it has not been fully updated since the Cold War ended. And in the last 30 years, American rivals, namely resurgent Russia and rising China, have increasingly adopted their own strategies to target and route around this system weakening its power and advancing their aims. So the system which has performed so well for so many years is actually more on the ropes than it has ever been. And I would argue at a time that we need it about as much as we ever have. Uh, Mira, thank you for that history. And let me just stick with the history very briefly before getting to the present and the future. Um, you know, you, you go through the formation of alliances in Asia and Europe by the United States. And it occurs to many people that the structure of the alliance in Europe, which is a collective security agreement, NATO, uh, is very different to the structure that you have in Asia, which is a series of bilateral agreements between Australia and Japan and so forth with the United States. Was that a historical accident or was that something that was designed on purpose? Uh, could you explain to us why that occurred so differently in Asia compared to Europe? It's a really important question, John, because exactly as you know, there sort of is a perennial discussion about why Asia does not have a multilateral pact that looks more like NATO. The answer is that it is the result of some amount of historical contingency, not least the demand of the countries in both Europe and Asia who were seeking security at the time. And that is the way they sought security from and with the United States. The decision to form the Atlantic Alliance, the alliance that would become NATO, of course, was not actually the United States decision to initially extend a security guarantee to Western Europe. It was a group of Western European countries that came to the United States and asked it to join them in what was called the Brussels Pact. That is their multilateral effort to keep themselves safe as the Soviet Union appeared to be consolidating its own sphere of influence. Now the United States declined to join that treaty, but that planted the seed of the idea of forming a multilateral pact to help to guarantee the security of Western Europe. And that of course happened in 1949. It wasn't until 1951 with the official end of the Pacific War in Asia on the horizon that the United States really began to contemplate its first alliance in Asia. And that was, of course, with Japan. 
The alliance was supposed to be part of bringing the war to a conclusion, ending the occupation of Japan, and finding a way to continue helping Japan to rehabilitate. But the idea of a U.S.-Japan alliance did not sit so well with several regional states who only a few years before had been facing Japan in a world war, namely Australia and New Zealand and the Philippines caught wind of the fact that the United States was thinking about forming this pact with Japan. And they came to Washington and said, hey, we would really like our security guaranteed too. And by the way, it doesn't make us so comfortable that you're forming this pact with Tokyo. So before Washington actually put its treaty guarantee to Japan on paper, it formed its first alliances with Australia and New Zealand and with the Philippines, all as part of this formal end to the Pacific War, the end of World War II in Asia. And as a result, as a result of these needs of assurance in particular, the stage was set for alliances in Asia to be mostly bilateral. Now, after 1954, there was another spate of alliance formation in Asia. This followed the end of the Korean War and the French collapse at Dien Bien Phu. And there were a few more bilateral pacts extended then too. The one effort at a multilateral pact in Asia that really ever occurred with the, was the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization that failed spectacularly. Um, not because it was multilateral, but because it really wasn't fit for purpose. But the basic answer is that because of the demands of the countries who were seeking to work with the United States, in part the way they saw Japan, but also the way they saw their own rivals, that is, they all did not necessarily share the same rival in the Soviet Union, uh, Communist China, or North Korea. And finally, the fact that Asia's geography is a maritime geography as opposed to one that shares one singular front line uh, the way that Europe did. It made much more sense in the early days of the Cold War to form this series of bilateral pacts that became what we call the hub and spokes system in Asia that is very much uh, still with us uh, in its hub and spokes form today. Uh, let me move to the contemporary period, um, and, a, and a few participants, uh, Jesse Johnson's one of the Japan Times, uh, who's raised an issue about the ongoing um, US host nation support negotiations uh, between the two countries. I suppose my broader question is, uh, when Donald Trump began and um, denigrated some of the alliance relationships, there must have been a constituency uh, or part of the American population uh, that believed that that was a plausible criticism. Uh, what I'm really asking, and it's, an, it's a question that's very important for Australia, obviously, and other allies, uh, amongst those who are still skeptical of the benefits to the United States or the notion of free riding by allies, what is the main criticism? Is it that allies are not spending enough money, unlike the United States? Or is it that allies are not prepared to bear the risks and the costs uh, of, in this region, particularly displeasing China? Is it a combination of both? Uh, just try, give us a better understanding of what the uh, complaints may be uh, when it comes to alliances in the, in the, in the current day. Yeah, John, you know, I, it's an important question that itself has a lot of historical antecedents to it, um, which is in some ways ironic. That is to say that for as long as this system has been around, um, American publics and American planners have worried that allies may not be doing enough, both in terms of their financial contributions to a given alliance and their willingness to take on risk. 
But the reason why these criticisms are a bit ironic is because the system was actually designed from its inception to be asymmetric. That is, U.S. planners were perfectly well aware that at the time they were forming alliance treaties with countries that were not nearly as powerful as the United States, and they actually preferred to spend more than their allies on defense for the first couple of decades of the Cold War, because this gave them more leverage, more influence over their allies' foreign and defense policies. Um, so there actually was a grand plan that involved the United States being the big kid on the block, the senior partner in a series of asymmetric alliances. Um, and this was built into the design from the inception of the system. Nevertheless, as time passed, um, as the, you know, uh, height of the Cold War sort of passed us, American leaders uh, began to get increasingly concerned that allies weren't stepping up, um, that they were increasingly uh, consolidated, increasingly had thriving economies, and were not doing enough to provide for their security. It is, of course, not consigned to Donald Trump that we've heard this criticism. Uh, this criticism came from uh, JFK, came from Richard Nixon, came from Barack Obama, George W. Bush. But the difference with Donald Trump's criticisms really is one of kind and not of degree. Whereas prior presidents were inclined to raise these issues with allies and have them on relatively collegial terms behind closed doors, even if they were reasonably irked uh, by perceived underspending on defense, Trump appears to be willing, perhaps even eager, to hold our alliances at risk, potentially breaking them all together for the sake of shaking down allies for extra defense dollars. Now, I know I don't need to tell you, John, or you, Charlie, that this would be wildly counterproductive because a US foreign policy that can no longer depend on allies will definitionally be more expensive than one that can depend on them. So even if we're just looking at alliances in rote financial terms, uh, the decision to take this burden sharing standoff so far is not fundamentally in US interest. But I'd love to turn the question back to you all. Australia has recently made a major announcement about its future defense spending and really its defense strategy. How do you see that new strategic uh, plan figuring into these questions of burden sharing? Is this an effort by Australia to show that it's being a good ally? Or is there perhaps a more complicated story there? John, why don't you take this one first, then I'll uh, follow you. My, my, my sense, uh, well, my strong sense is that it's more than just uh, trying to show what a good ally we are. Um, if you look at the defense update, it's not just the increase in defense spending. Uh, it's about 475 billion over 10 years, which is significant for Australia it's that almost half of that will be on um, new capabilities. And if you look at the new capabilities, what are they? They are things like long-range missiles, potentially land-based missiles, supersonic missiles, unmanned vehicles, um, offensive cyber capabilities. Now, you ask the question, why would Australia want these? Because traditionally, Australia's number one priority has been to defend the continent from uh, attack, right? We we are now investing in these sorts of technologies um, to potentially uh, engage in a war that, that is far beyond our shores. So essentially, we are now trying to help shape or alter the balance of power in uh, further flung places in East Asia, uh, which is quite a sea change for us. 
Now, why are we trying to do that? We're trying to do that because uh, there's a sense that if, if we don't, then the balance of power in Northeast Asia changes in a way that's adverse to Australian interests. Uh, so what I'm really trying to say is Australia has now taken on a far more expansive view of its uh, strategic military and tactical role. Essentially, it is about China. There's no other reason why we would invest these capabilities. Um, and, and it is about uh, deterring uh, Chinese um, expansion of Chinese military capabilities. So it's no longer defense. It's essentially saying to the Chinese, if you continue to expand your military capabilities, we and other countries will develop our capabilities to, uh, to, to put those Chinese capabilities in danger. So this is quite a proactive approach by the Australians. Um, and, and it's quite a uh, expansive view of our strategic role in the region compared to what has been in the past. Yeah, um, I'm gonna hop in on that one too, Mira. Um, uh, again, noting that I speak with the wrong accent for this, but I'm just doing analysis of Australia's uh, defense strategic update because I think it was pretty significant. This is, uh, it came out um, at the beginning of July and accompanied the boost in defense spending, as John has alluded to. What I think is most interesting uh, about this is if you read uh, Prime Minister Morrison's speech that accompanied the rollout of the two new documents, what he had to say was this was not about the United States particularly. Uh, this was mostly about Australia and how Australia assesses that its region has changed and how there has been a vast uh, arms race, but only one country has been undertaking it, and that country is China. And in order to make sure that peace and prosperity to which um, Australia has benefited so much continue, it has to keep pace with the changes. And so the two major things that I look at uh, from this, which I think are really interesting, and I hope lots of folks in Washington are paying attention, as I know they are, uh, is that first, Australia's focus geographically has shifted uh, certainly away from the Middle East. You didn't even see that mentioned in the Osman statement, but actually much more tightly circumscribed around Australia and particularly its northern approaches, right? So you think out into the Indian Ocean, up into Papua New Guinea and some of the islands above it, and then out into the western approaches of the Pacific. And as John alluded to, the capabilities that Australia is now going to bring online faster than it was in the past, right? There had been a big purchase for submarines that may or may not show up by 2030. They wanna bring uh, assets online in the next two to three years that will increase their punching power in their near abroad. The idea is to be able to hold people and that people here means China further off from their shores. What I think is most interesting uh, in this though is that it points the way for a different approach for Americans' relationship with it, all of its Asian allies. And I think, uh, although that's not necessarily discussed in this update, it's clearly uh, implicitly there between the lines. Because I think what you see is uh, partially out of some concern for the United States uh, and how strong it is and whether or not Donald Trump will be elected again, but more so because of that growing power imbalance, you see states being led by Australia here, wanting to become much more tougher and maybe able to push out further in their immediate vicinity. 
The open question, though, is if Australia does that, will others follow if this is the model, right? That the environment has become more fraught. So Australia, despite the coronavirus pandemic, despite uh, a looming economic recession, is going to say that we need to keep pace here. Otherwise, this begins to look like the 1930s. So question one, will other states like Japan, potentially like South Korea, uh, in a different constellation, perhaps the Philippines as well, uh, will other states keep pace with their spending? And then it's an invitation, or this is at least how I read it, for the United States to rediscover its convening and coordinating role. Because if Australia is getting harder and tougher around its near abroad, and Japan does that, and New Zealand does that, I mean, you can draw the dots on the map. The question is, are we reduplicating uh, lines of effort, or are these being sufficiently coordinated altogether? Charlie, I think this is such an essential point that you just landed on. I'd, I'd love to jump in here um, before we move on. And that is the, the fact that what you've really laid out here, both of you, um, quite thoughtfully, is that Australia is sort of signaling an inflection point, um, both for itself and for the region. That is, in an ideal world, Charlie, um, if we take your, your theory on face value, Canberra is saying, these are the capabilities that we're requiring to meet this very apparent defense challenge in our region. We'd like to see Tokyo do the same, noting in a parenthetical that uh, Japan just made a big defense decision of its own to shelve a missile defense system and is now considering investing in offensive strike capabilities instead. There will be domestic political problems with that uh, potential decision, but it nonetheless sort of fits part and parcel with the types of debates that, that Charlie and John have laid out. Um, so we could see a future where American allies are increasingly investing in similar types of capabilities and the United States has the opportunity to play a major coordinating role um, in the region to help to establish a really credible defense. Um, but the opposite could also turn out to be true. That is, if the United States remains woefully unpredictable or simply behind the ball on its regional strategy, what we could see is American allies increasingly investing in autonomous capabilities, which if there is no central coordinator and no central coordinating role being played, increasingly could be less interoperable and thereby lead to redundant capabilities amongst allies or gaps. And I would point to Charlie's terrific recent piece in foreign policy on this question. Um, so it's not just an important announcement for Australia. It's really an important set of choices that's being laid out for American allies in the region. And, and Australia has really underscored a set of debates that has really been with us for some time. Yeah, um, you know, I do want to get back to your book, Mira. That is the focus of what we're talking about. But I think that uh, you've raised a really important point here that one of the more harmful things I think that comes up in the discourse of security and even prosperity uh, in the region, be it Asia or Indo-Pacific, if we're talking about it like that, is that it's all about US-China competition. It's a bilateral thing. And I think that's so harmful uh, because one, uh, that seems to put aside every other nation's concerns, uh, frankly, about what China is doing to them. And second, this is a wonderful thing, a wonderful trope, if you sit uh, in Beijing, because it takes away not only the initiative of every single ally and partner, but also all their sovereign capabilities, because one-on-one -on -one is a challenging uh, competition, one plus 
all of the relationships that is one that I would be much more willing to play. But now I want to pull you back to your book, uh, and it's about your call uh, about why uh, the alliance structure needs to be refocused or updated. And I note uh, that in your opening comments, you had even said that this has happened before. America's updated how it thinks about alliances and what they're supposed to do multiple times before. But um, two things jumped out at me. Uh, you noted that we need to refocus, we need to update now for two reasons. Uh, first, because adversaries, and here we're particularly talking about China and to a lesser degree, Russia in the region, um, know what Washington's red lines are. And therefore they don't quite get there, but they take it in different ways. Uh, the second point being that uh, those adversaries have learned how to skirt international law. Uh, they pay lip service to it, but they skirt it and get around it. Uh, so I guess my question is, those sound pretty truthy, but can you actually offer some examples of both of those in play and explain uh, why they demand a refocusing of the structure and capability of America's alliances? Absolutely. Um, and I'll lay out the challenge in Asia in particular, because it actually uh, knits together the conversation that we've just been having. I think for America's allies in Asia, the challenges posed by China's rise in increasing capabilities really lies at two levels. The first is the more traditional military level. Um, that is China's increasing capabilities, in particular, its anti-access area denial capabilities, its ability to target American allies in particular using missiles and other sophisticated systems that could potentially keep the United States from intervening on a conflict, on the, intervening in a conflict rather on their behalf, thereby eroding the credibility of US security guarantees. Now this dilemma is most central for Taiwan, who is the central target of China's missile developments, but is increasingly sailing it for Japan and even Australia and certainly the Philippines. Um, so this is the military challenge that we've been talking about and that Australia's defense strategic update in many ways responds to. But the second level of challenge is a little bit more slippery than that. Um, and that is the fact that precisely because Beijing is able to observe where America's alliance commitments lie, that is, understands what actions by it may trigger its treaty commitments, it has also been able to devise a wealth of strategies that skirt around those commitments without ever triggering them at all. There we can think about things like its South China Sea island building campaign, or efforts to exploit the exclusive economic zones of other South China Sea claimants, its harassment of military vessels uh, in the region, certainly, and even its alleged recent cyber attacks on Australia um, and other countries, all activities which do significant damage to the national interests of the countries involved, but never trigger an American alliance commitment to activate it. Now that's because American alliances are designed to respond to high-end conventional military conflict. So China is able to advance its aims without activating the system, leaving the United States and its allies often feeling like they're on their back foot, even though some of their dear interests are indeed being occurred upon by China's actions. 
So the challenge as I see it is to figure out how to reconfigure the system to apply to some of these areas so that defense and deterrence can continue to operate even below the military threshold and around places like the maritime and the cyber domains. Uh, Mira, let, let's shift to contemporary policy. And when I do a survey of the formal treaty allies in the region, so Japan, Australia, South Korea, Thailand, the Philippines, it occurs to me that Australia, Japan and South Korea are advanced economies, fully industrialised countries. They have fairly similar institutions and processes uh, to when it comes to how they make strategic and foreign policy. Uh, you know, these are countries much more familiar with the American system or much more complementary in a sense to with American institutions and the American system. Now, Southeast Asia has often been called a soft underbelly uh, of the alliance system for the United States. And when you look at the two allies, the Philippines and Thailand, the Philippines are a low-income country, Thailand is a middle-income country. Their processes and in some respects their, rate, their governing regimes can be quite different uh, to the United States. Their capabilities are far more limited than the other three advanced countries that I mentioned. Uh, in your mind, either drawing from history or your policy thinking now, what, uh, what is possible with these Southeast Asian allies? Is the United States potentially expecting too much of them, uh, given what's occurring now? Um, or, you know, do you think that these two Southeast Asian allies can be uh, as effective, subject to your own constraints, uh, as the other uh, three uh, alliance partners? I think you're raising a really important point, John. I think there's a sort of perennial uh, problem among American, po American policymakers uh, to be a little bit over optimistic about what a given ally may be able and willing to achieve. And in the case of both Thailand and the Philippines, we have to think about both the political will and the capabilities uh, that they may bring to bear on challenges like those that we have been discussing. And there's a significant historical component to the fact that these alliances don't really look like the others. First of all, as you alluded to, the American presence in Southeast Asia really was wound down after the end of the Vietnam War. Um, the alliance with Thailand was sort of a vestige of the former Southeast Asia Treaty Organization that was kept together, um, but was heavily caveated and it certainly wasn't deeply invested in. Um, after the United States uh, withdrew from Vietnam. The alliance with the Philippines, of course, found itself on the rocks after the end of the Cold War. The United States lost both of its bases in the Philippines and was only just in the process of really rebuilding that relationship in response to China's increasing maritime assertiveness in the early uh, 2000s and 2010s, when President Duterte was elected. So as you have signaled, Southeast Asia really is something of a soft strategic underbelly for America's alliance, America's alliances as a product of this historical contingency. Nevertheless, I think we have seen a quiet set of strategies um, by American and allied planners in, in both countries over the course of the last several years, and that is to try to keep these relationships intact um, with ongoing communications, and in the case of the Philippines, ongoing working level relationships that seek to prevent the uh, alliances from rupturing entirely, and in some cases seek to protect some of the gains that have been made 
prior to, in, in the Philippines case, the election of Duterte. Um, and as a result, the basic structures have been preserved um, such that it is possible that uh, both alliances could do more in the future. I do think it uh, would be necessary to see some amount of change in leadership uh, in both countries to make those alliances significantly more robust. So our expectations do need to remain modest for now. Um, but I do think that American planners have taken the long view and are counting on the fact that there will perhaps be some continued convergence of interest. We need look only to the fact, of course, that a few months ago, Duterte had promised to end the visiting forces agreement for US troops in the Philippines, and at least for now, has paused that pledge and is once again concerned about China's South China Sea's assertiveness. So there is a possibility that both countries will in some way come back into the fold, but they will not anytime soon be Australia, Japan, or the ROK. So when we talk about big alliance initiatives, whether networking our alliances or modernizing them to respond to gray zone challenges, I do think we should be keeping the focus on these three allies with whom the United States has been the closest and have these most productive relationships all along. Now, let me, before handing back to Charles, let me uh, change that completely because I can't resist asking this question. And it's, it's one that's been raised by a few people. Uh, ben Shear from Macquarie University is one of them. Now, if Joe Biden becomes president in November and he takes office next year, in a context of alliance management, uh, what is the one or two things that he can learn from uh, the mistakes that not just Donald Trump has made, but that Barack Obama has made? Hmm. A great question. Um, and I'm going to pull Charlie in with me on this one. So I'll, I'll give my answer first, but then I'll, I'll kick it over to my good friend. When it comes to what a President Biden uh, could learn from President Trump, um, I mean, the, the lessons are too numerous to possibly describe here, or, or maybe the answer is that he shouldn't learn any lessons at all. Um, he should just keep his blinders on. But, but I think a clear lesson that we are living through today is the incredible cost of American unilateralism. Um, the decision to uh, withdraw from multilateral agreements, to coerce and bludgeon our allies at the expense of alliances, to fail to develop a multilateral strategy for Asia and China is just completely untenable, not least because the geopolitical math will not favor the United States in the future if it works alone. Um, that is, its strategy must work with and through allies going forward precisely because we see power shifting so rapidly in the region uh, that a US decision to go it alone simply isn't sustainable. Um, I do believe the vice president is very well aware of that lesson himself, uh, but one note that I would make here that the three of us were discussing before this conversation began is that may actually change the stakes for U.S. allies in Asia. That is, in a world where you had a President Biden working through multilateral institutions, through allies, and through agreements, we might actually see allies being asked to do a lot more rather than sort of simply looked on shocked as a headlong great power confrontation seizes the region. Um, so I would expect a Vice President Biden to both take that advice, but for that advice to pose some challenges for countries in the region. Uh, when it comes to what a President Biden could do differently from Barack Obama, I would focus us back on this question of subconventional or gray zone challenges. 
for the first half of the Obama administration, I think it was difficult to determine that China's strategy and Russia's strategy was actually increasingly prevalent on advancing aims below the military thresholds. But by 2012 or so, it had become clear that these were features and not bugs of both countries' strategies. That was that the South China Sea assertiveness that we were seeing from China was not just a passing set of flukes, but rather was really Beijing's effort to advance its aims. So something that Vice President Biden would need to update his thinking on since his time in office is the significance of subconventional activity and what US responses to it are going to be. Because thinking of it as sort of ancillary or an annoyance clearly won't do anymore. And it must be a part of any kind of comprehensive American strategy working with allies for the region. But I wanna hear what Charlie thinks about this. Uh, I think what Mira thinks. Uh, let me um, let me add a couple of points to that, though. Um, so first, um, uh, from my perspective, uh, the Trump administration, and you need to say Trump administration because that's quite clearly different than President Trump himself, who is all over the plate and got much more uh, pointy on China only after the coronavirus uh, and his administration's failure stuck out for this. Because remember, going to January and then before, uh, President Xi is a great guy. Uh, if you believe the allegations in John Bolton's book, uh, he thought that President Xi was doing just the right thing in Xinjiang, uh, where they're committing a genocide over the Muslim Uyghurs, and in fact, encouraged, if not greenlighted him, to crack down harder in Hong Kong. So there, it's really important to differentiate between the Trump administration and Trump himself. Uh, so a, a couple of things that I would throw out about things that have been uh, learned. Uh, so first, uh, I think that the Trump administration uh, has the um, diagnosis correct, uh, but the prescription all wrong. Uh, that is, uh, China has increasingly upped the tempo. It is the one that has pushed harder and interfered more in multiple countries' sovereign affairs. Uh, but its prescription has all too often been far too unilateral and only, or if not exclusively, in the military domain. Um, I think that there's even been an adjustment on that that we're beginning to see now that while there needs to be a military response, and there will be one, uh, that the Department, the Treasury Department, uh, the Commerce Department to become even larger players for a Biden administration than they have been to this point. Because so much of what we're discussing, as Mira just laid out, is this gray zone type of activity that we're talking about does not occur solely or even exclusively within the military domain, and it happens domestically. So the beefing up of our domestic apparatuses and the coordination between like-minded nations, I think we'll have to uh, increase there. Uh, the final point that I would just note, uh, I guess final two points uh, that Mira made is one, if Biden is elected, the rhetoric to allies will sound much nicer, uh, much more traditional, that we love our allies, that we don't think they're free riders, that we don't think that they're a drag on the American system. But don't be fooled by the rhetoric because the rhetoric, uh, I think, might glaze over the fact that because the pow power balance has shifted so much, 
there will be more asked of allies. And in fact, it might be more challenging for allies. Uh, John, you had just asked about Southeast Asia. Uh, this is a great case in point. Because the Trump administration has ignored Southeast Asia so much, this has allowed many Southeast Asian nations to one, complain about being ignored, and then two, sit out the competition. If this becomes more multilateralized, uh, played out through economic and diplomatic means, I don't think that as many Southeast Asian nations would have that luxury in a Biden administration. Uh, final point, and then uh, I had a, a burning question for you, Amira, is I think that there has been a reevaluation of the acceptable levels of risk that America is willing to undertake. Uh, that, and it has increased, and it might not stay the same in all the ways, certainly not rhetorically that it has under the Trump administration, but seeing that raising the risk factor does not trip us into World War III in any way, but in instead actually pushes back against some of the more assertive uh, actions that China has taken, I think that that's something that has been internalized and will begin to play out in policies of a Biden administration. Uh, okay, Mira, here's my question uh, on that, although a bit of a variant. Um, the strategy agenda that you suggest, and um, for those of you who haven't read Mira's book, and again, I want to hawk it, you should go to Amazon or Amazon.com AU and buy it right now. Uh, there really is a step-by-step, -step, almost year policy that starts us, not that surprisingly, at 21. Uh, those of you who are following at home who maybe Amira lays this out starting on page 95 of her book. As I read uh, the strategy that you were talking about, uh, and you can tell me if my reading is right or not, it was mainly a defensive strategy. Uh, that is, uh, to hold the line, to deter further aggression, and to prevent a China-dominated closed sphere of influence from taking hold in Asia. And I guess uh, my question for you, Mira, is, What's the role of offense here? Uh, can those objectives which you had laid out be accomplished from a purely defensive standpoint, or will the strategy requiring something that looks a little bit more offensive and a little bit more assertive? Charlie, I love this question. Um, this is just the, the sort of question that you love to get from a, a dear friend and a terrific scholar really, really pushing you um, to wrestle with your own agenda. Um, so I will say that the answer to this question starts in the strategic objectives that I'm laying out. As we noted at the top of the program, of course, alliances are not objectives in and of themselves. I'm not simply calling for us to renovate an alliance system because it's a nice thing to have. I'm calling for us to renovate it because we need it for the objectives that we seek to achieve in the world. What are those objectives? Um, in both this book and one that I have coming out in September with my co-author Rebecca Listener, uh, I am calling for the United States to adopt a strategy that seeks to keep the world open. That is to acknowledge that the United States is past its Cold War peak of power. It no longer has military primacy in Asia, but it can nevertheless keep other powers from forming exclusive spheres of influence, that is, China from closing off parts of Asia or specific domains um, can help to keep the global commons open and can itself um, and along with its allies remain interdependent and interconnected in the ways that serve all of their interests. 
So in some ways, this is a defensive strategy because we might think of openness as the sort of steady state of the world under ideal conditions. That is, if international law is operating, if institutions as formed are functioning, the world should remain open for free transit, for trade, for the movement of goods and people, all the things that keep our nations strong and secure. Um, but in several cases, Charlie, I think you're pointing to a really important question, which is the fact that offensive tactics may need to be adopted even for a strategy that has defense at its core. A few of those areas come to mind. Um, the first is that it's really hard to defend in cyberspace using defensive tactics alone. Um, that is a forward defense strategy in cyberspace is what the United States has increasingly focused itself on. And I think the US and its allies are increasingly likely to cooperate on going forward. Um, second, in areas like political interference and disinformation, if the United States and its allies wait until disinformation campaigns land on their shores or until there is meddling in their dearest democratic processes, they will already find themselves on their back foot. Um, so they need to be conducting together, um, supporting one another, positive information and diplomatic messaging campaigns uh, that seek to take the power out of rivals' efforts to spread disinformation and political interference. Those have to be affirmative strategies. Third, when it comes to being able to keep the world open using alliances amongst other tools, there's a great need for affirmative building of new institutions and norms where we don't yet have them. Um, that is, we are unlikely to see universal institutions take shape around cyber governance or governance of the internet because the United States and its allies and Russia and China do not see eye to eye on how those areas should be governed. Um, so in addition to holding the line, the United States, Australia, and others will increasingly need to group together with like-minded nations to set norms in cyberspace, to govern the internet, and to get folks who agree to come along, even if that membership isn't universal. Um, so there are a lot of ways in which affirmative or offensive tactics are needed to keep the world open, even if that ultimate goal sounds pretty defensive in its objectives. You know, Mira, you have a uh, pretty ambitious plan to re revitalise, in a sense, update alliances. And, and I reaffirm what Charles said for, for those out there, to know what this plan is by the book. Now, let's, let's take that as granted. Um, but, and this is a question raised by John Benton and a couple of other people. Uh, that pool of, that, pool, that isolationist pool in the United States will still be there. Uh, it may be heightened by uh, the economic issues, the debt issues that will become worse after, uh, or given what we're going through at the moment. Um, there is still a lot of domestic division in the United States. There will still be talk of repatriation of supply chains and so on. And by the way, this is the argument that China tells, gives to the region, that ultimately the United States will look after itself and retreat into isolationism when things get difficult. So hit that in the head. Um, is that a real issue and concern that much of the region should have? 
Well, I think, John, you're, you're laying out a great counter argument to the one I'm making, and all of the concerns you lay out are real. There is no question that in this particular moment, the United States finds itself on its knees in ways that we couldn't have imagined even a few years ago. Um, and that the moment that we are living through now is going to continue to reverberate for several years to come, whether in the global health crisis, the economic crisis, or in the United States, the racial justice crisis, which has risen to the fore with the other two um, as such a clearly pressing part of the agenda. But the reason to think that an ambitious effort like the one I'm laying out could nonetheless come to pass is because the costs of failing to undertake that effort will be grievously high if we don't do it. What do I mean by that? As I've already noted, the United States is, of course, past the peak of its Cold War power. It does have a peer competitor in China, whether measured in economic or military terms. And it will, once again, as Walter Lippmann suggested, need a foreign policy that keeps itself safe as it rebuilds its public health economy and society. China, of course, will keep rising and the effects of our global pandemic will be with us for years to come. So this very clearly is a world in which Washington and its partners who are facing many of these same challenges cannot afford to go it alone. The original purpose of this system was to pool resources against common threats. And we still have many common threats and resources that certainly demand pooling to meet them, albeit on different terms. So a decision to let alliances wither on the vine is really a decision to squander our collective best chances of having disciplined, cost-effective foreign policies when we so clearly need them. As I see it, we are at a true turning point. We have the opportunity to remake a highly successful strategy to fit the world we inhabit or face that same world alone and at much higher cost. I certainly hope that we're going to opt for the former, but time will tell. Uh, I'll just, uh, as we begin to wind things down here, uh, I'd add in uh, an interesting counter note, uh, a somewhat counterintuitive note, uh, that if you look at the best polling on American attitudes towards alliances, and this is done by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs on a yearly basis, um, it's hard to think of someone with a larger tweet-a-phone uh, and having more antithetical views, traditional views, towards America's alliances than Donald Trump, right? So that is to say, if you wanted to make the counterargument as strongly as you possibly could, that this is not a good deal for Americans, uh, that America doesn't do that much good in the world, uh, it's costly to us and we'd be better at, at home, Donald Trump is the best person that you could put on stage for this. And he has made this argument starting in 2015. So he's done it persistently. What's interesting though, is you would imagine uh, that American attitudes, uh, and there are a lot of pre-existing feelings that confirm, which is why he's able to make an argument like this. You would imagine that American attitudes would begin to go south on how America's uh, alliances have worked out for it. And yet we've seen over the past three to four years precisely the opposite effect, which is so crazy that I wanna repeat that. Under Donald Trump, American attitudes about its alliances have gone up, not down. Now, that doesn't tell us all that much about whether or not Americans will be willing to spend more themselves, but it does tell us that there's a wellspring of support 
for this system that America has had, and that it knows that one of its greatest comparative advantages is that it has many friends, uh, as opposed to being isolated. Uh, I, I know Amira is getting itchy, so I want to give it right back to her before we conclude. Charlie, it's, and it's, it's an essential point, and I'm Mira. so glad you made it. Um, the, the key thing I want to note here is that Donald Trump has actually managed to close a partisan gap in American public opinion on alliances. That is, over time, when Americans were polled before, it was often Republicans who were more sort of whole hog in support of American alliances. Democrats were sometimes a little bit more nervous about them, especially after the end of the Cold War or after the Vietnam War. But you now see in both political parties extraordinarily high support for an American foreign policy that relies heavily on alliances. The one exception to that is that folks who self-identify as core supporters of President Trump's are less likely to support NATO, less likely to support American allies in Asia. So we may want to look at this as a reflection of partisanship more than anything. Nevertheless, it's also true that we see tremendous bipartisan support in Congress for congressional measures that aim to tie the president's hands when he himself is trying to dismantle American alliances, whether withdrawing troops from Germany or from South Korea. This is all to say that a moment where American politics and foreign policy seem like they could not be more polarized, there actually is a substantial foundation of both public and elite support at the highest levels that should make us optimistic that we at least have a fighting chance of pushing through a renovation agenda that will keep the system alive and well for years to come. Uh, yeah, and uh, I just uh, note that this is one of the many things we talked about America kind of as the central point for its alliance system. But one of the things that's been uh, particularly uh, useful for me to watch uh, as I've lived in Australia is, of course, there are partisan differences here. Uh, but it's been a precept of Australian foreign policy to try as hard as possible to keep foreign policy, particularly around national security, bipartisan so that issues uh, like Russia in the US or China do not get politicized. And particularly as it affects sovereignty and national security, I think it's a really uh, bracing and informative lesson that Americans could really take from our uh, Australian allies here. Uh, but look, uh, we're out of time, sadly. I, I do think we could keep going. There were really a terrific ton of questions. I hope we integrate as many as possible. Uh, again, as John and I have said, buy the book. It's a terrific book. It packs a ton of wallop, as you can hear Mira speaking. It's only 200 pages long. Uh, and I hope uh, you'll join us as Mira has been uh, John and my first victim, because uh, we want to do this on a monthly basis, talking about really new and interesting books uh, that are changing how we think about American politics and American foreign policy. And in fact, uh, John and I are gonna do this again uh, at the end of August, where we'll be talking with Time Magazine's Molly Ball, who's just written a terrific book about Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but you don't have to wait all that long for the next webinar, because John will be moderating the next webinar, which is only in two days time, um, on Friday here in Australia, about the Sino-Indian border crisis and whether or not that is pushed than it has been in the past. Uh, again, I'd really like to thank uh, Mira uh, and John for participating here. And again, what none of you guys can see at home is the extraordinary legwork uh, that our team at USSC does on both comms 
and events. Uh, Janine Pinto, Mara Gonzalez, uh, Mari and Taylor, uh, you guys just do so much work. Sue's too for these great graphics. Uh, and it's really important to acknowledge just how much work is put into these things so we can beam into all of your living rooms here. Uh, so thanks very much for your time uh, and hopefully we'll see you all again soon.